Hello, welcome to Adapt, episode 13. My name is Ryan Christoffel, and I'm joined by my co-host, Federico Vatici. Federico, how are you today? I'm good, Ryan. Hi, how are you? Pretty, pretty well. It's getting cold here, so we are having a bit of an Arctic blast here uh, in the U.S., mm. and yeah, that sounds really fun, doesn't it? That's so fun. we're supposed to know. get down very cold. I, I won't tell you what temperature, because I know we both speak different languages when it comes to mm. temperature measurements. Yes. I have yeah. no idea what Celsius measurements are. You have no idea what Fahrenheit. So we'll just leave it leave it at that. It's going to be cold. <laughs> just, uh, just tell me that it's cold and I believe you. I know what cold feels like. Yes. So that's enough. Uh, yes. Well, Ryan, what better way to fight the, you know, the cold and, and the, the Arctic storm than setting up some automations to turn on your heater or your fan if you have one or, you know, your... Uh, you know, all the different solutions that people use in the winter to fight the cold and that kind of stuff. That is uh, a clever segue. And I actually do have an automation that relates to the cold weather, but we'll talk about that in a little while. So Interesting. Okay, so uh, today we're going to, uh, this is going to be the last um, episode in our shortcut series. It's not the last episode of Adapt, it's the last segment, uh, the, the last installment of our shortcuts sort of mini-series that we've been doing since the release of iOS and iPadOS 13, taking a look at all the different features of Shortcuts this year. Uh, we're probably going to have in the show notes, um, I'm guessing, uh, links to catch up on all the previous episodes in this series. Uh, we've been trying to uh, talk about Shortcuts at the beginning of, of every episode. So uh, it's very easy to catch up. Just start one of the episodes linked in the show notes and you will get the topic about Shortcuts first. So you can move from feature to feature and sort of uh, catch up on all the changes in shortcuts this year. We saved the arguably the best or most popular or most important new feature for last, and that's automation. Um, automation, it, it, it's a funny word, right? Because automation, uh, in the general sense, um, using shortcuts is automation. Uh, shortcuts is an, an, an automation app. Uh, just running and creating shortcuts, that's automation. But automation as a marketing term is the name that Apple gave to the feature launched this year, which is the ability to run certain shortcuts um, automatically based on certain triggers. And some of, these some of these shortcuts can run completely in the background while others uh, require your manual confirmation. That's a new feature of iOS and iPadOS 13. It lives inside the automation section of Shortcuts and sort of also the automation section of the home app on your iPhone or iPad. But I wanted to focus specifically on creating automations in Shortcuts, in the Shortcuts app, and um, managing them and explaining the different kinds of automations that you can create. Uh, let me ask you up front, Ryan, are you using the automation feature of Shortcuts much? Uh, much, I probably wouldn't say much. I have a few automations set up that I use, you know, regularly, but I, mm. I feel like it's something that there's a lot more potential to explore what else it can do for me. Um, right now it's just a few things that I have automated. Got it. How Got about it. you? Uh, well, I, I think I have a few, I have a few more, I would say about uh, I think in the in the shortcuts app I have about twenty at the moment, probably even more. Wow. Um, 
I know. Uh, let me. Let's see. It's about fifteen for personal automation, and about twenty for home automation. So it's uh, quite <laughs> a, quite <a> <laughs> that, that um, is quite a few. So, but let me let me explain. So the idea would be that um, with automation, your device um, through shortcuts can react to changes, um, specific changes, and these changes are called triggers. And once a trigger is activated, it runs a shortcut. That would be the main idea. Uh, it's sort of like a if this then that scenario, uh, but applied to shortcuts. Um, there are two main types of automation of automations that you can create. Um, if you tap the plus button in the automation page of shortcuts, you will see two sections for a personal automation and a home automation. Now, what Apple is doing here is they're bringing HomeKit automation, which was an existing feature of iOS, under the same banner of automation in shortcuts. And they're splitting them in two branches. Uh, there's personal automation, which is the traditional shortcuts uh, route, and there's home automation, which is also kind of powered by shortcuts now, but I'll get to that later. Uh, I want to focus on personal automation now. Personal automation means you will be able to run shortcuts that you created in the shortcuts app when something happens. And there's uh, three main types of triggers that you can choose from. Uh, three different categories, events, travel, and settings. Um, events means something happened in, for example, a time of the day occurred, or you just turned off an alarm, or you started or ended an Apple Watch workout. And these three categories, you can select them in the automation page, and you can find additional filters for each of them. Uh, for example, as I mentioned, the Apple Watch workout, you can say when I start a workout or when I end a workout, but you can also specify uh, a certain type of workout, like when I start a running workout, do this. So you can get real precise in terms of the trigger that you can assign. And same for time of day, for example, you can say sunrise or sunset or a specific time or specific days and all that, those kinds of options. Travel, um, as the name suggests, um, are location-related triggers. When you arrive at a location, when you leave, before you commute, which is an interesting trigger in that there's really no way for you to say, I'm commuting right now, so shortcuts do your thing. Rather, uh, shortcuts is using Siri predictions to understand when you usually commute. So if you, were, if you have a nine-to-five job, for example, and you tend to leave your office at 5, and you're commuting by 5.10. Um, so when it's about uh, 5 p.m., uh, you're going to get this shortcut notification saying, uh, it looks like you're going to commute in 10 minutes. Here's the automation that you've set up. Do you want to run it? Um, I don't commute personally. I work from home, so I, I haven't been able to test this one, actually. Um, CarPlay is also part of the travel triggers. Uh, you can set up a shortcut to run whenever your iPhone connects or disconnects or either of them uh, to a CarPlay uh, setup in your car. Uh, also, don't have CarPlay in my car, unfortunately, so I have not been able to set this one up. And finally, there's a settings section of triggers. You can set shortcuts to run uh, when airplane mode is activated, when you connect to Wi-Fi, when you connect to Bluetooth, when you enable Do Not Disturb. 
or when you turn on low power mode, and the last two are arguably the most interesting ones, when you scan an NFC tag with your phone, or when you open a specific app. So whenever you open, let's say, Netflix, you can do things like uh, dim the lights and wake my Apple TV, um, stuff like that. Um, so these are all the triggers that you can set up for personal automation. And it's called personal because it, well, it depends on, <laughs> you know, conditions that happen around you. So, you know, they're personal. And once you create a trigger, what you can do is you can go about this in a couple of different ways. If you have an existing shortcut, uh, you can just use the run shortcut action so that you don't have to recreate the shortcut that you want to use in an automation. Uh, for example, I have a shortcut that logs my completed reminders uh, to a uh, numbers spreadsheet every day. And when I set up an automation that does this for me at 11.30 p.m. every day, just before midnight, I didn't have to recreate that shortcut from scratch. I just used the run shortcut action. And I basically, I'm basically running that shortcut as, a, as an existing function, let's say. Um, but if you want, you can also recreate all of your shortcuts. There's a shortcuts editor in the automation page, uh, and it's got all the same features of the traditional shortcuts editor. It's literally the same editor um, when you're creating a personal automation. Again, I'll get to the difference with home automation in a few minutes. Um, the thing worth keeping in mind here, I guess, and I kind of want to know about you, Ryan, and if you think this is a problem, um, in this first version of personal automation for shortcuts, one of the decisions that have been most criticized by people is the fact that not all shortcuts can run completely in the background without your manual confirmation. And that's because Apple designed the system so that all, all the triggers that depend on you performing a physical action do not require an additional confirmation to run a shortcut. For example, if you uh, scan an NFC tag, or if you open an app, or what's the other one? If you turn off an alarm, those actions, those triggers, they are based on you physically performing those actions. You, you, know, you, you need to physically bring your iPhone closer to an NFC tag to scan it. So when a physical action on your end is involved, you will be able to run a shortcut without any additional confirmation step. Uh, in the automation editor, you will see a toggle that says ask when run. And when you disable it, the shortcut will run entirely in the background on its own. Uh, you will just get a notification saying your shortcut, your automation is now running, but you don't need to do anything else. For more environmental sort of triggers like time of day of course or your location changes or you connect to Wi-Fi you will need to tap on that notification but this time you need to tap it because you need to manually confirm that you want to run the shortcut in that Apple wants to make sure that you're aware of the fact that an automation was just triggered it wants you to pay attention and it wants you to manually confirm, yes, run this automation. Now, this has been a sort of a 
a contentious point in the shortcuts community lately because everybody just wants to be able to run all kinds of shortcuts uh, in an automation setting uh, in the background without any confirmation whatsoever. So I wanted to hear from you, Ryan. Has this been a problem for you uh, for the automations that you have, the fact that sometimes you got to uh, confirm some of them? I wouldn't say it's been a problem, but mm. I, I certainly understand where Apple's coming from from the standpoint that you you don't want users to be confused or surprised when shortcuts run, especially if they're shortcuts that, you know, do something that could have negative consequences in, in real life. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like it's, it's a little too uh, restrictive to mm. force users to have to activate those specific shortcuts from notifications. Um, I feel like this is something that Apple should just entrust shortcuts users with the option for. So right. if, because especially most people, yes, Apple has made the shortcuts app more accessible this year. It is a lot easier to get into. And automations really are a great way that kind of uh, the average person who isn't used to much in the way of scripting or automating different things with their computers they could set up some automations pretty easily. Apple has made it very simple. But I still feel like most of the people who are going to use automations are advanced users who yes. <laughs> can understand the the ramifications of the choices that they make. And so to, to remove the option entirely, I don't agree with that decision. I think Apple should leave it up to users to decide what they want to do. And maybe they could just make it um, a little... A little harder to you know turn off the notification setting mm. to make it truly automatic right now there's just a single toggle in the different automations that are compatible with running automatically in the background where you can you know flip that one toggle and and you're done apple could make it maybe like an extra step where maybe a confirmation prompt comes up that says are you sure this is going to run every single time that this thing happens and right. you could say yes i, I think that would maybe uh, maybe not because people are used to just kind of dismissing prompts that come up, but but maybe that would um, kind of bring a better balance between ensuring that people don't accidentally set up automations that that they don't really want to run every time that trigger activates. Um, whereas, you know, you'd still be able to, as someone who knows what they're doing, turn on or turn off the need for notification. I, I think it's something that Apple should just leave up to users. I I don't agree with removing that option entirely. But that said, it's not something that's been painful for me. It's not something that's been a particular problem. It's just, I, especially for people who are way more heavy shortcuts users, and I, I'm someone who aspires to be a more heavy shortcuts user, uh, and the, the fact that I have to, you know, for lots of automations, activate them from a notification it's just it's not quite as clean and seamless and and easy as it would be if things could run in the background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I I kind of wish that Apple would have a system where shortcuts learns from you, and so if it sees you, uh, you know, having confirmed an automation to run fifty times manually, maybe a toggle appears that says, "Hey, we, we see that you know you." you usually confirm this automation if you want we we can uh enable uh you know running in the background for you so that 
after a certain, once you've reached the, a certain threshold of how many times you've confirmed an automation, maybe that should become an option uh, because shortcuts can sort of trust you. But I agree with you. Honestly, there should be a much simpler system where advanced users can just say, you know, I know what I'm doing. Just let me let me take care of this. Uh, I know all the risks. I know all the ramifications. Just give me the controls. And, you know, maybe they could ask you for a passcode or something, like an even tighter um, security mechanism to make sure that are you fully aware that this automation will run every time you switch locations or something? And then you would say, yes, I'm fully aware. I know what I'm doing. Thank you. So there should be a much simpler system. I agree. Hopefully that'll come in the future. Um, so uh, personal automation, again, you have a list of triggers. Um, there's a section in my iOS review where I list every single trigger and every single option for every trigger. And in terms of actions, you can use all kinds of actions. Uh, if, if a shortcut does not require user interaction, uh, it'll run in the background whenever possible. If you have a shortcut that runs in the background uh, but requires user interaction, such as typing into an alert or choosing from a list, the shortcuts app will open and you will see the shortcut. Uh, I have a shortcut, for example, that um, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes. Whenever I get in my car, I can tap on an NFC sticker um, to bring up a list of options. And in theory, that's a shortcut that can run, uh, that's an automation that can run in the background uh, with ask when run disabled. But because it, it requires user interaction, uh, it opens the shortcuts app. And that's because I need to choose from a list. And there's no other way that I can choose from a list. Home automation is interesting. Home automation has been a feature of the Home app since it first came out in iOS 10, 11. Um, it's been a feature forever. Uh, you can choose from certain triggers, like um, when a time of day occurs, and if nobody's home, um, turn on the lights, for example. Um, if the air quality is bad, turn on this particular appliance to purify my air in the apartment, stuff like that. That's been always a feature of the home app. What you can do this year is you can create traditional home automations in the home app, as always. You can also create them in shortcuts. Just pick a home automation and you will be able to create it from there. What is new and kind of hard to explain is you can convert a home automation to a shortcut. So after creating a home automation and choosing from the usual list of triggers, which is unfortunately unchanged uh, in terms of what kind of triggers HomeKit supports, when you, when you reach the point where you need to select the accessories or scenes that you want to enable when an automation runs, you can scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and you will find the button that says convert to shortcut. Now, what, what that does is it takes whatever accessories or scenes you may have selected already and converts them to an action. That action becomes part of a shortcuts editor that is embedded within the home app. So you can create advanced shortcuts using the shortcuts editor and variables, magic variables, and parameters, all those features, but within the home app for iPhone and iPad. Now, 
the there's a major difference between the shortcuts editor that you see inside the home app when you're creating home automations and the shortcuts editor that you see in the shortcuts app. Because these automations will run on any HomeKit hub that you have in your home. And that can be an Apple TV, that can be an iPad, can be another iPhone. Um, I'm pretty sure that can, can Macs also be home hubs? Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't. They, I think they can. Okay, uh, I, I don't think so, but I could be wrong. No, probably not. Probably not, though. Probably, you're right. Probably Mac. You know, if you have a Mac computer, that's not a home app. I think the HomePod, of course, the HomePod, right? Be a home app, uh, and the Apple TV and the iPad. So, because devices that do not have the shortcuts app can also become HomeKit hubs and can run home automations, what happens? Imagine this. What happens if you have a shortcut that requires a third-party app or requires user interaction and a HomeKit hub that does not have that particular third-party app or the shortcuts app even installed at all tries to run that shortcut? Well, obviously, things would break. So the difference between personal and home automations is that Home automations only include a subset of shortcuts actions. Not all of them. They do not have access to any third-party app. They do not have access to your iCloud uh, Drive or Dropbox accounts. They only contain a limited subset of actions from shortcuts. Actions that can run in the background without any user confirmation, without any user interaction, entirely on their own, on any HomeKit hub. And again, that's because they need to be able, you know, home automations, they need to be able to run independently in the background. They may need to run at any point during the day. And most of all, the HomePod doesn't even have a display. It doesn't even have a screen. There can be a shortcuts app for the HomePod. So in bringing the power of shortcuts to home, the shortcuts team needed to cut several actions that you otherwise have access to in the shortcuts app. So creating an advanced shortcut for home automation can be a little little strange at first. So you may find yourself putting together a shortcut that maybe needs to perform um, an API call to a, bu- to a web service like Toggle or Todoist or, you know, Pushcut for push notifications. And you want to use a text action. Well, there's no text action in, in, in the shortcuts editor inside the home app. Uh, there's no choose from list. Uh, again, because you, you cannot choose from a list when a shortcut is running on an Apple TV. Um, there's all kinds of actions that you you would expect to be able to find there, but you will not find them. And so, uh, similarly, because um, HomeKit hubs do not have access to your shortcuts library, you can't use the run shortcut action. One of the one of the roadblocks that I was running into when I started testing iOS 13 a few months ago, and I started putting together these home automations was, well, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to take an existing shortcut that I have in the shortcuts app, and I'm going to use the run shortcut action and call it like that. But there's no run shortcut action when you're setting up a home automation. And that's because HomeKit hubs do not have access to your shortcuts. They have no idea what your shortcuts are. So you need to recreate them from scratch all over again. Now, it is debatable whether this limitation makes sense. I understand why an Apple TV or a HomePod, they cannot possibly use actions like choose from menu or choose from list or ask for input. Like, I get it. They are HomeKit hubs. They run in the background. They need to just execute code without user confirmation. But I do believe that the run shortcut action should at least be possible. Uh, you shouldn't have to recreate all of these automations if you already have a base shortcut that you've already created in the shortcuts app. And maybe that'll change in the future. Um, for example, with iOS 13.2 and watchOS 6.1, all your shortcuts can now run on the Apple Watch, even if the Apple Watch doesn't have a shortcuts app. And that's because the iPhone is syncing your shortcuts, is sharing the shortcuts library with the Apple Watch. So maybe in the future, that'll do the same for home automation. But right now, this is not possible. So I know that this is very challenging and sort of difficult to wrap your head around, especially if you're listening to a podcast in audio format. So my suggestion would be create a home automation in the home app, convert to shortcut, as I explained before, and see what I mean by you only have access to a subset of actions. Uh, search for iCloud Drive, and you will not find any iCloud Drive action. Um, there's just very few of them, but thankfully, there's enough, I think. Uh, even if it's just a subset, the things that I wanted to create in Home with Shortcuts integration, I've been able to create. Um, does this make sense so far, Ryan? Uh, the way that I described the differences between home and personal automation? It does. And I mean, for myself, as I've played around with what Apple's built in, it seems to make sense. I mean, I, I would rather they do what they did, which is take out the actions that cannot be used with home automations, rather than, you know, seeing them all in one place and then having shortcuts that don't actually run properly. I think it makes sense that they would only show you what you can actually use. And the ones that they have included are actions that make sense in a voice-only context. So uh, I think Apple made the right choice here. So I wanted to share a few examples of personal and home automations that I have. Uh, I mentioned I have one that at 11.30 p.m. logs my completed reminders for the day to a spreadsheet in numbers. The idea would be that in a few months, so I've been doing this for the past month, in a few months I will be able to uh, look back on this spreadsheet and see how many tasks I complete on average on a certain day. And I know that it's not ideal that at 11.30 p.m. I need to tap on a notification and select run every single time, but it's better than not having this. So uh, when it's 11.30 and I see the notification, I know that it's time to log my reminders. At 11.30 p.m. I usually stop working and I usually took care of my reminders for the day. So it's a pretty close approximation of how many tasks I've completed on a certain day. Um, I set up a 
two workout related triggers uh, for personal automation. So when I start a workout, I the shortcuts app opens and brings up a menu that lets me shuffle um, my workout playlist or allows me to select one of the podcast episodes that I may want to listen to. And the podcast actions are new in iOS 13. They fetch my library of shows directly from the podcasts app and I can choose episodes from there and they start playing in the background. It's very nicely done. I've gone a bit crazy with NFC stickers um, over the past couple of months. Um, I discovered the existence of these anti-metal NFC stickers that you can stick on any metal surface and they will keep working. Um, That's because traditional NFC stickers, if you stick them to a metal surface like my IKEA metal nightstand, It'll, you know, the, the material will create any sort of like an interference with the NFC chip and you will not be able to scan them. But if you search for anti-metal NFC sticker on Amazon, you will see what I mean. They have like an additional layer of, I'm guessing, plastic on them. And uh, since I discovered this, um, placed a couple on my nightstand. I have one that shuffles a playlist on the HomePod that we have in the bedroom and also dims the lights. And I have another that whenever I scan the sticker, it it wakes the Apple TV and uh, opens the Netflix app on the Apple TV. And again, all of these things happen in the background uh, without any confirmation because scanning an an NFC sticker is amongst the actions that do not require user confirmation. I mentioned the sticker in my car also brings up a menu that lets me listen to music, listen to podcasts, or send an iMessage to Sylvia to tell her that I'm home. Um, I have another on my desk. Actually, I have a couple on my desk. There's a one that shuffles a different playlist on the HomePod, and there's another that I attached directly next to my audio interface. And when I scan it, um, Shortcuts on the iPhone runs a bunch of SSH scripts the talk to my Mac Mini and set up the Mac Mini for podcasting. So they open Google Docs in, in Safari, they open Audio Hijack, they open QuickTime. It's, you know, it sets up the, uh, the Mac for recording and uh, podcasts, which is nice. The only open app shortcut that I have for personal automation, uh, since I started, I stopped uh, using Overcast a few months ago to use the Apple Podcast app instead. I found myself missing the audio boost feature of Overcast that boosts the audio and improves the general quality of the audio. So what I do uh, to make sure that I get the loudest volume whenever I open the podcast app, uh, I set up an automation that whenever I open podcasts, it sets the volume to 100%. It's a single action that make sure that whenever I open the podcast app, I'm listening to max volume um, because that's what I prefer. So these are the, some of the highlights for personal automation. And for home automation, I uh, talked about Unconnected, uh, the crazy home security system that I have. Um, so w- whenever the door, if the door should ever open uh, and, I've, and I'm not at home, the sensor that 
we have by the front door and all the windows, uh, it triggers a smart plug. And the smart plug is connected to a siren, a very loud siren, 120 decibels siren that I bought from Amazon and I connected to this smart plug. And so the, the siren will start going off very loudly. But because it's a custom shortcut, I will also get push notifications as well as text messages. And these are actions that use the get contents of URL action inside the home app to contact the pushcut API and the Twilio API to send me push notifications and SMS um, text messages, respectively. Uh, the latest addition to, to this automation, the lights um, also turn, all the lights turn up, uh, switch to white color, 100% brightness, and all of my HomePods also start blasting a loud siren music track at 100% volume. So imagine, you know, a, 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 a loud siren that I bought from Amazon plus three HomePods at 100% volume uh, blasting a different siren track. And let me tell you, Ryan, even at 40% uh, volume via the HomePod, that siren track is not fun or pleasant <laughs> at all. Now imagine 100% on three HomePods while another siren with a different, very disturbing sound is also going off. Uh, so, so are you trying to scare whoever's breaking in or are you trying to make them go deaf? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kill them. Oh, <laughs> I see. <laughs> oh. No, honestly, uh, yes, it, it's very likely that, you know, knock on wood, nobody will ever try. But should anyone try to break in... They um, will regret it. <laughs> they, they will regret it, yes, because the sirens are very, very loud. Um, to the point where I couldn't test them. Like, I needed to test the HomePod at 40% volume because any more was just too much. And the siren obviously doesn't have any volume control. Like, when power is, when the power is triggered on the smart plug, the siren just starts going. And to test the siren, I needed to cover it with a bunch of pillows uh, so that it, the sound will be a little quieter and to make sure that the cables that I connected were working. But even with the pillows on top of the siren and me sitting on top of the pillows, uh, the dogs were still scared by the sound. So uh, it's, a, it's a tiny thing, but it makes a lot of noise. Uh, and finally... I described these automations in, in last week's issue of our Club Mac Stories newsletter. I recently acquired a Dyson fan, um, which I connected to HomeKit uh, using a custom HomeBridge plugin. I have a HomeBridge server running on my Mac Mini. There's a plugin called Dyson Link uh, that allows you to use Dyson appliances even if they do not have official HomeKit support. So what I'm doing now is whenever the bedroom is too cold, the Dyson turns on and switches to heating mode with a certain temperature. And if the apartment is warm enough, the Dyson, the heating mode switches off, um, cooling mode is engaged again, and it switches to auto. So what it does, it just, it just purifies the air. Uh, and that's it at a very at a very uh, low intensity. 
Um, so by itself, these these action, this this flow of actions would be a traditional HomeKit automation. But what I've done is I've also uh, included um, push notifications. I've been using this um, service called Pushcut, and Pushcut is like a push notification service designed specifically for shortcuts users. Um, it lets you design these notifications. You have an actual notification editor UI on the iPhone and iPad that lets you put together these rich notifications that can have actions attached to them. Actions can be opening the shortcuts app to run a shortcut, or even better now in the latest version of the app, running a HomeKit scene in the background from a push notification. So whenever, for example, the Dyson says, uh, look, it's warm enough, it's 22 degrees, um, switching off for now, and I get that notification, if I expand the notification, it's got a button that says, no, keep the heater on. And when I tap it, it runs a HomeKit scene that overrides the automation and basically tells the Dyson, no, keep heating the house because I want it to be warmer. Um, and all of that happens in the background just by tapping a notification. And the notification is delivered to me via HomeKit because HomeKit hubs can now run shortcuts actions. So that's, uh, seeing the screenshots in the newsletter, I think helps visualize how it all works. But that's basically the extent of my automation in shortcuts this year. It's, it's a, I know that it's kind of a convoluted process and it, you know, it takes a lot of trial and error. But my recommendation for listeners would be to play around with this stuff, put together something, see, see how it works, see what it looks like, and maybe you'll, find a few actions or routines that you may want to automate in the future. Yeah, and a few of my personal automations, just to give some examples of things that are even simpler, <laughs> so people could recreate them really easily if they wanted to. Uh, one is that I have an automation where whenever I turn off my alarm in the morning, then I get a weather report from Carrot Weather, because whenever I wake up, I want to see, okay, what's the weather going to be like for the day? Uh, another is, like you'd mentioned, uh, automatic messaging. So whenever I am about to leave school, I have an automation set up to send a message to my wife to tell her that I'm on my way home. And, and that's the one that I mentioned earlier it has to do with cold weather because for the longest time, I resisted using an automation like that because I'm like, oh, I don't want to have kind of a standard message. I want to personalize it every time, right? And uh, make it, make it a, a, a little more uh, interesting than just the same message every time. But since it has started getting cold, I wear gloves so that my hands don't get destroyed by the, mm. the cold wind. And so I really don't want to take off my gloves to write a personal message anymore. And so I automate it, uh, which makes it a lot easier. And then one other one, which is kind of, it's a sort of automation that shouldn't be necessary, but I found it's been helpful, is that whenever my iPhone connects to my AirPods Pro, then I've set up an automation where it will just initiate playback of whatever was last playing. There's a there's a shortcuts action where you can set a play pause action to either just play or do either one or pause. Um, I, ha I have it set up to just play, which is something that the AirPods and AirPods Pro are supposed to do automatically. And they do sometimes, 
but not always. And so I found that it's helpful to have an extra bit of assurance that something's going to start playing when I put the AirPods in my ears. Um, I, I wish that there was a way to play whatever the last podcast that I was playing um, and just do that directly because I feel like that would be even more foolproof so that, you know, if for some reason the podcast app was, you know, accidentally uh, it crashed or there's some other issue that's that's having, you know, causing there to be um, a problem connecting to what I had last played, um, if the podcast app through shortcuts offered an action to play the last thing that you've been playing, then I could use that instead. Um, as it is, the podcast actions, they are really powerful, but they're more set up so that you can say, um, play a specific podcast that you've configured ahead of time, or you know, at the time that it's run, you can say which podcast to run. But it's there's not an action such as I think you can do through shortcuts with third-party apps like Overcast, um, depending on the playlist that you have and so on. There's no concept of just resuming the last thing that you were playing in podcasts. And so I use the generic kind of audio action for that. Um, and it works okay, but again, it, it would be nice to have something a little more foolproof. Um, and then home automation, I've got a couple of those as well. One that is just turning on the lights when people get home. The other one turns off the lights whenever the last person leaves home. Those aren't, um, they just don't take advantage of anything new that was added in iOS and iPadOS 13. It's just the old home automations, but I've always found them helpful. Very nice. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I, 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 I always try to mention this. Um, automations, in order to be useful, they don't need to be complex. Um, sometimes the best, most useful, most relevant automations are the simplest ones, you know, one, two actions. Shortcuts uh, don't have to be complex to be useful for you. Sometimes the only way to build a useful shortcut is to make it a complex one. But that's, you know, length and complexity doesn't necessarily mirror utility. So don't feel bad. Uh, you know, I'm speaking to my listeners. I, I often get these comments like, I don't think I'm a shortcut power user like you because all my shortcuts are super simple, two, three actions, but I use them all the time. And that's fair. Like, you don't need to feel bad. Uh, that's the entire point of visual automation. Even with just a couple of actions, a lot of complex things are happening behind the scenes for you. And so sometimes I have a lot of one, two action shortcuts that I absolutely love, took me 30 seconds to put together, and that's entirely the point. So don't be, don't be discouraged by the fact that other people create complex shortcuts. Because the ones that, that I create and that I share, um, you know, sometimes are necessarily complex because it's the only way to perform a specific functionality. And, but really, most of the time, my shortcuts are super simple and basic too, and that's totally okay. So I uh, just wanted to put this out there uh, to remind people that it's, you, you don't have to do crazy stuff with web APIs and you know prog programming and that kind of stuff for automation to be useful. Ryan, it is time for the challenge, uh, and I wanted to remind the listeners, uh, the challenge that I assigned to you a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to explore the App Store and go look for Calendar Apps for iPad to try new options and especially Calendar clients that would support iPadOS 13 with shortcuts, 
new multi-windowing features or maybe keyboard shortcuts and keyboard integration. Um, I see a couple of options here that I was not expecting. So Ryan, how did the challenge go? Well, it was good. Like you said last time, this isn't a challenge in the terms of it's it's really something that is is hard to do and I, basically i mm -hmm. downloaded a bunch of calendar apps and played around with them and uh yeah there's there's a lot of good options on the app store uh when it comes to ipad os 13 specific features there aren't as many at least at this point I, I think in time that will change but some of that may have to do with some of the unique challenges with calendars which i'll mention in a moment so there are four apps that I want to highlight and just do a brief rundown of some of their strengths and kind of give you a little information. So if one of them sounds like it might be interesting to you, you can go check it out and, and right. try it yourself. Um, but some of these are really well known and some of them I don't think are as well known. So hopefully it will be uh, helpful for our listeners. Uh, the first one I want to start with is perhaps the best known of the bunch, which is Fantastical. This is an app that has been on the iPhone and iPad for many, many years now. It's an excellent app. And really, out of all the third-party calendar apps that I tried, and even that I have tried in the past, it is just the best at the basics of what you would expect from a calendar app. It, it seems like, in many ways, a more traditional app. It has very traditional... Um, kind of expected layouts and features, mm. um, but it does it all really well. So I'd say overall, it's the best at the basics. Uh, it's got a good design. There are features such as reminders integration. So you can have your reminders tasks live side by side with your calendar events, which makes it easier to keep up with what's actually going on throughout your whole day. Um, there's a really good widget for the app, lots of customization options. The clear standout strength uh, of the app which is really unique and for some reason isn't found in many other apps is there is natural language input for creating new events so when you are making an event rather than dealing with let's say the menu that apple's calendar app uses where you've got a whole bunch of different parameters and you put in the time and you put in the name and you put in the location and you tap in and add notes and whatever other things you add in manually with fantastical you just start typing and the app is really great at identifying different parts of what you've typed so if you type in you know monday 3 p.m it knows that that calendar event isn't supposed to have monday 3 p.m in the title instead that is the time of the event and so you can you can do things like that uh, just very easily by typing, which which is a great feature for a calendar app. I don't know why it's not in more of them, um, but Fantastical is really good with natural language input. As far as native iPad system integrations, the app supports split view. It does support dark mode in mm. iOS and iPadOS 13. Um, it has some good keyboard shortcuts, which is, again, something that I didn't find often in other apps. Um, it has good shortcuts, and the app also does support multi-window on oh, iPadOS, nice. which is it's kind of an interesting... It, again, it's the only calendar app that I found that supports multi-window, 
but the way that it does that is kind of a mixed bag. So the main negative, the main drawback of multi-window as it's currently implemented in Fantastical is that you can't have different views that show different calendars in separate windows. So I, I think it'd be really useful if I could have, you know, two Fantastical windows that both have different configurations of which calendars are showing in those windows. Right. But because the app uses a universal setting system for which calendars will appear no matter what window you're using, um, if you change the calendar appearance settings in one window, it will change in all the other windows. And so that's that, that would be really nice if you could separate those two and have different calendars in different windows. Um, right now you can't, which means that the main appeal is that you can use different view settings for, let's say, a month view, a week view, a day view. Um, you can have those in separate places, uh, which I, I think it has some value. Um, you can, for example, keep a Fantastical window inside of SlideOver, now that SlideOver can hold a bunch of apps at once. Um, where you also have a separate Fantastical window, let's say paired with a different app in Split View, it's it's a nice to have. But I think that the best way that multi window could be implemented in a calendar app would be allowing different calendars to be visible mm -hmm. with different um, windows, and that's just not possible right now. But overall, Fantastical does a whole lot right. Uh, it's a fantastic app well worth checking out. Uh, the next one that I want to mention is TimePage. TimePage is an app that I've loved for many years because it just has a gorgeous design. It, yep. Visually, you look at the app, it is so beautiful. And you can customize it with different colors and they all look really, really good. Um, aesthetically, TimePage is the best that I've used. Now, Throughout its history, and, and things have gotten better over time, but I remember when I first tried TimePage, yes, it looked gorgeous, but the way that the design actually worked and how you interacted with the app and how you created events, it was a little more finicky. It, it was a little more complicated and didn't feel as natural or intuitive. And so the development team behind the app has improved that over time. And there was actually an update not too long ago, which I reviewed on Mac stories where they made a lot of good changes that made event creation easier, that made things like um, the way you navigate in the app simpler. And so I think they've gotten it to a really good place where the way that the app works is no longer a drawback. Like I think it was at least at the very beginning um, now it looks gorgeous and it works really nicely as well. Um, I really like on the iPad how if it's in full screen, you can view both the week view and the day view at the same time. And so you get a nice list for the week that you can scroll to get an overview of your day. Whereas on the other side of the screen, you get just the breakdown of that day in particular and all the events that are going on. It's really nice. Um, the biggest drawback for me personally with the app is that it doesn't have a traditional month view. Uh, I, with all my calendars historically, I have used a month view. And I like to see, especially on the iPad where you've got all that screen real estate, 
I like to see a, a full grid of days that shows the calendar view where you can see what all the events are on different days and it's all visible there at once. In time page, there is a month view, but it doesn't show you all the events on each day. You have to tap on a specific day to see what events are happening that day. Otherwise, the only thing that the month view does for you is it shows you, you know, the calendar overview of the month. So you can see, oh, you know, the 20th is on a Sunday this month, or, you know, it's easy to keep track of what day of the week specific days fall on. Uh, and you, you get a heat map. There's a, kind of this design effect where the days that have more events will kind of be brighter and and show up more on the month view, which is kind of a clever trick. But it, again, it looks nice, but I wish that it was more functional. I wish that I could see what the different events were on different days in one view rather than having to tap on each one. Mm-hmm. Uh, another strength of time page is that it integrates with the actions app from the same developer uh, mm. with a similar design. That's the, the task manager one. Right? Yes, exactly. So actions is a task manager. So it doesn't integrate with reminders like Fantastical does, but it does integrate with actions. So if you use, you know, time page and actions together, they work really well together uh, and they both have similar designs. So they look great. Uh, the app supports split view on the iPad. It supports shortcuts at least a little bit. There's some shortcut support, um, but there's nothing else in terms of modern features. So you don't get multi-window, uh, you don't get keyboard shortcuts. There's a few ways where it falls short. And then two more apps I want to cover. One is called Capsicum, which is like a daily planner. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is something that I feel like hasn't been maybe hasn't been done enough on digital devices is taking the concept of a physical daily planner that someone might use uh, and putting it into a great app experience. But Capsicum does that. So you, inside the app, you have this concept of notebooks. And you can create multiple notebooks that have different settings, different calendars, different notes, things like that. Um, I've only used one notebook where I have everything set up. But inside the app, you'll see that there is uh, a variety of information given to you. So you can, again, view kind of a standard day or week or month view. And inside that view, you'll see what the weather is for that day. You'll see a list of your calendar events. You'll be able to add tasks. Uh, it doesn't integrate with reminders. That's That's the one feature that I feel like this app could really use because it really seeks to uh, aggregate a bunch of information from different places, weather, events, tasks. There's also a notes feature, um, but the tasks here you have to input manually. So it doesn't integrate with a third-party system or Apple's reminders. Um, there's a notes field, so you can put in just random notes, uh, which can even include images. And so it really, if you like working in a daily planner, if you've done that historically, then Capsicum is a great way to move that into the digital realm. Uh, it's a nicely designed app. It's, it's great to have kind of all this information in one place and get an, a quick overview of what's going on in your day or in your week. And so I, I think it's a really solid app if a daily planner is what you're looking for. Um, 
You can also do things like habit tracking in the app. So if you want to set up habit tracking, that's a feature. Uh, split view is available, but there's no multi-window or dark mode. Um, so from what I've seen, it seems to be the best or one of the best daily planner type apps. So if that's what you're looking for in a calendar app, I would check out Capsicum. And then finally, the fourth app that I want to mention is called Calends, which... Never heard of this app before. Yeah. I have no idea what it is. So it's Calends with a K. Okay. Calend, and then with an S Calend. at the end. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we'll have links to all these apps in the show notes. But it is more of a traditional calendar app, similar to Apple's calendar or to Fantastical. But there are a few features that are nice that kind of distinguish it from the rest. One, which is... You know, it can be really functional, um, but it's also just really aesthetically pleasing is you can add stickers to your calendar. So okay. there's a, a selection of stickers built into the app that you can choose from, and you can just kind of add them wherever you want to on your calendar. So um, one thing that's nice about this is if you just want a better looking calendar, you can kind of have fun with it and just add fun little stickers all over the place to make your calendar nicer looking. Um, but it can be practical. So for example, there is a laundry machine sticker. So if you wanted to put a laundry machine sticker on the day that you're planning to do laundry, you don't need to create a laundry event in your calendar. You can just put it on there as a sticker. It looks nice. It lets you know, oh, that's going to be laundry day. And, you know, just looking at your calendar at a glance, it's it's actually really nice to have the ability to, to add stickers. I, I kind of wish that I had that in other calendar apps. Um, the one drawback with stickers is that for some reason they only show up in the view that you were in when you added them. Uh, what I mean is if you are in month view and you add a sticker, it will only show up in month view. It won't show up in week view. Uh, and this is really because the stickers don't actually seem tied to specific days. You can put them wherever you want on the calendar. You can put them you know, on the line the grid line in between two different days. Um, there's a lot of flexibility in where you put them. You can resize them to be as big or as small as you want. And so I guess as a result of that extra flexibility, which is nice, um, you don't get to you know, see those stickers transferred over into different views because you know, they're not actually tied to specific days. Um, there is an option in Calends to add notes to different days, uh, which, again, includes photos like in Capsicum. Uh, there is reminders integration, which is nice to have. Yeah. There is a one-tap export for printing out your calendar. So if you want to, you know, with a single tap, uh, print out what your day's going to look like or what your week's going to look like, if you're someone who, you know, is is trying to make the transition into the digital era with calendars, but you still really like to have that paper copy, uh, you can easily get that with calendars, which is nice. Um, the week view is something that I think calendars does really well because for me personally, the kind of traditional week view in other calendar apps is something that I have never liked. Um, for some reason, just the way that let's say an Apple's calendar app where you've got a um, from left to right chronological order of what the days are, but then you have your events as kind of blocks on the screen that take up a certain amount of time vertically on the screen. 
Um, it's kind of the standard way that week calendars are done in apps. I don't like that. It doesn't work for me. I, I've never enjoyed that view. But in Calends, it has this unique grid where it's very similar to a standard month view, but in week form where you get a, uh, a two by four, four by two grid of different days. And so you can see each of those and they adjust really well in different, let's say, split view orientations or if you have the app in slide over where it doesn't have a whole lot of space on screen, you can still see all eight of those blocks uh, on screen at once where you get all seven days of the week and then a little extra uh, month calendar view in the eighth block. And it's really nice to be able to see all that at once, no matter how much screen space you give to the app. Uh, it's a feature that I haven't seen in other calendar apps. Again, most use a very similar week view, which doesn't work for me. So I've appreciated that. And then as far as iPadOS features, there's not much. You, you can use split view. Um, you can use dark mode in iOS and iPadOS 13. So that was added recently. But again, no multi-window, no shortcut support. Uh, or keyboard shortcuts. So uh, a few ways that it does well and a few drawbacks. At the end of the day, so there are a bunch of great calendar apps out there. These are four of them. And uh, if any of them sound interesting, I definitely recommend checking them out. But for me personally, mm. I decided that Apple's calendar app is still the best option for me. <laughs> so I, I have used Apple's calendar app for a long time. Uh, honestly, the first thing that that really drew me to it is that it opens so quickly. And part of this is just an advantage of Apple's built-in apps is that most of the time they can launch faster than third-party apps. Um, but for me, when I'm, you know, checking my calendar, it's, I, I just, I want to get in and get out really quickly. And so speed is important to me. And then I really like the month view. Uh, on the iPad, I use month view all the time. And on the iPhone even, where, you know, typically you can't fit a full month view on screen because you don't have much space. On the iPhone, the calendar app has this kind of joint month slash agenda view where on the top half of the screen, you do see the full month, even though you can't, you know, see what the precise events are on those days. But then in the bottom half of the screen, you see kind of an agenda list of what your events are for the currently selected day. Kind of like what I talked about with time page but on the iPhone where there is a smaller screen, so it makes sense to not have a full month view, but you still kind of get the, both, the best of both worlds, I think, with the iPad and the iPhone app. So, so that's what I am going to continue using. Uh, I, I like to keep track of these other apps to see what new features they add, to see what updates they have coming out, because you know I'm certainly open to using something different, but I've been really happy with Apple's calendar app, so that's where I am sticking for now. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you for your service, Ryan. This was uh, the, the last one. No idea this app existed. So um, uh, part of the reason why I sent you the challenge was to be surprised. And I was surprised by at least one of them. But uh, I, I did enjoy listening. I had no idea that Fantastical already had uh, multi-windowing support in iPadOS. So thank you. This was uh, quite a few interesting options. We... Uh, we have time for a couple hashtag askadapt questions. And uh, as a reminder, if you want to ask us a question uh, for the show, uh, send us a tweet using the hashtag askadapt 
and we will take a look at all your questions and we, we may consider them for uh, answering them on the show. Uh, listener Rowan wants to know, uh, did either of you use a cut, copy, and paste shortcut for creating and editing shortcuts in iOS 12? If so, will you miss the functionality in iOS 13? I'm considering keeping at least one device on iOS 12 just, just for this ability when creating long shortcuts. Now, I am assuming, Ryan, that you didn't use cut, copy, and paste shortcuts. That is um, correct. Okay. So cut, copy, and paste were shortcuts that involved a technique that I've recently explained on Mac Stories. It's basically a system to create shortcuts programmatically. Uh, a shortcut is essentially XML code wrapped up in a plist file. So if you know the syntax, you can sort of create your own shortcuts. And last year, um, some people figured out a system to let you cut, copy, and paste actions between shortcuts by effectively overriding a shortcut in your library with an updated version containing new actions. Actions in shortcuts are basically, again, XML code with specific identifiers, and if you know the syntax, you can recreate them manually. Um, well, not manually, programmatically, sorry. Now, this technique stopped working in iOS 13 because shortcuts no longer allows you to open a .shortcut file in the shortcuts app. If you want to install a shortcut in iOS 13, you got to go through iCloud.com. So those cut, copy, and paste shortcuts are no longer possible. Um, I do not plan on using an iOS 12 device to, to replicate this functionality. I, will, I barely played around with cut, copy, and paste last year. It was an interesting functionality, um, but honestly, what I do now Whenever I have to recreate actions um, in a complex shortcuts, what I do is I just do it manually. I know that it's going to be a long process, but what I do is I open my iPad because it lets me scroll, uh, you know, in portrait mode, it lets me see more actions. And I open the shortcut on my iPad. And with my iPhone, I open another shortcut. And I basically take a look at the iPad screen and recreate the shortcut on the iPhone. And I switch back and forth between the two devices. So I keep the iPad for reference and I recreate the shortcut on my phone. It's not ideal, but it's better than switching back on a single device between two shortcuts to, rec to recreate them. Um, but yeah, uh, there should be, like honestly, there should be a native feature, cut, copy and paste for actions. But then again, there should be so many more advanced features in the shortcuts editor. It's, you know, it's a much longer topic. Um, Jim wants to know, I will be giving, oh, this is a fun one, I will be giving a, pi, a PowerPoint presentation at a conference in a few months, and I'm hoping to run it from my iPad. However, one thing I am struggling to find out if, is if there are any clickers that work with the iPad. Do you have any experience or advice? Well, uh, Jim, the only time that I, had, that I did a presentation, uh, the clicker was given to me. And the keynote presentation that I prepared on my iPad was also taken from me and put on a MacBook that was hooked up to the, uh, to the conference setup. So I have no idea how they did it. I have no idea what the clicker was. 
But I was hoping to include this question because maybe adapt listeners will send us recommendations for clickers that you can use for PowerPoint presentations. Do you have any experience with PowerPoint, Ryan? I do, but again, I, I've used clickers with Macs and not with an iPad before. Mm. So it's a great question. I would think because Apple has a really great Keynote app on the iPad and they've done a lot of work to make it really good. I would think that clickers do work with the iPad, but I don't have any experience with that. So hopefully our listeners do and uh, they'll have an answer for Jim. Yeah. And finally, uh, Jonathan asks, uh, this is a good question. I'm surprised that, I, that we never addressed this before. When you connect an 11-inch iPad Pro to a 4K display, does it mirror in, how do you read this, uh, 14 by three, uh, 4 by 3 or 16 by 9, the video format? Um, I was curious about this as soon as I saw the question. Uh, the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, which is the big one, the one that I regularly use connected to my external 4K display, outputs in 4x3. That's the format of the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. The 11-inch, which I also have and I use as my reading books, articles, and playing games iPad, it does output in 16x9. So I tested both of them and I took pictures to make sure that I wasn't imagining things. You're still going to see the black bars at the sides of the display, uh, but the black bars are thinner when the 11-inch iPad Pro is connected, and that's because the image is larger, because it's using a 16 by 9 format. Um, it's, it's a bit, essentially, the image that you see mirrored on the external display is a bit wider than the 12.9-inch iPad Pro in landscape mode, which is also effectively what you see, what you see in real life. The 11-inch iPad Pro in landscape is a bit larger than the 12.9-inch in terms of uh, display format. So yes, it does keep the display format of the 11-inch iPad Pro, but the black bars are still there. They're just a bit narrower than with the big iPad. And that's about it, Ryan. All right. Well, let's wrap things up by giving you a challenge. Oh, God. Okay. It's not bad i don't think although i mm. i don't i don't think you're gonna like it per se but i'm curious to you know hear how it goes mm. so i would like you to edit an article either your own or mine or john someone else's edit an article by using the smart annotation feature of apple's pages app so if you what, what is that even? I don't even know what it is. Okay, well this is this is a good learning experience. If you don't know what it is, then probably lots of listeners don't know what it is. So smart annotation inside of pages allows you to use the Apple Pencil to make annotations on the text inside your pages document that are those annotations are linked to specific words and uh, okay. um so Something that people, I th I've seen people do with the iPad sometimes is if they need to, let's say, edit, mark up a document, they'll make a PDF version of it. And then they use Apple's markup tools to, you know, circle things that need to be changed, underline different things, whatever. Um, and that's, that's a decent option. But inside of Pages, you can actually make those kinds of edits directly into the Pages document itself. 
without it being a PDF. Um, and the great thing about this is that those annotations are tied to the specific words or the specific, you know, sections that you underline or circle or highlight or whatever you do with them. And so as changes are made, um, you're not stuck with those same annotations. So uh, one example is with a PDF, if you, you know, mark stuff up, then the person who is making the edits afterwards, they have to work in a separate document that's editable rather than using the same document that actually has the edits you know, built right into it. So the idea here is, you know, rather than doing what you might sometimes do in actually editing the actual text by, let's say, removing certain parts of it, um, changing different words, you would do it a little more in a manual way of using the Apple Pencil inside of pages to mark up different things, to make different notes. Um, I, I don't expect this is something you're going to want to do moving into the future, but I am curious to hear kind of what that experience is like because that's a more traditional form of editing, uh, just like someone who has a piece of paper would kind of mark things up. Um, I, I'm wondering kind of how that experience goes in terms of does it change anything for you? Does it, do you have any new insights uh, in doing things that way? Just what's that, what's that like? And I think it could be an interesting learning experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's not too bad. It should be fun. I like using, always like using pages. In fact, our, I believe our first challenge uh, involved using pages a while back, a few months ago. So, um, yeah, this sounds fun. I, well, obviously, I, you know, we do not write articles or edit articles, for that matter, in a word processor like Pages. But I can work around it. I have, I have some ideas. So, okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. All right, this has been episode 13 of Adapt. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can visit our website, relay.fm slash adapt slash 13 or just look in the podcast app you're listening to right now. If you want to follow us online, Federico's on Instagram and Twitter as at Vitici, that's V-I-T-I-C-C-I, and I'm on Twitter as at I-R-Y-A-N, T-L-D-R, that's I-R-Y-A-N, T-L-D-R. You will find us both writing at maxstories.net. Until next time, Federico, say goodbye. Arrivederci. Bye.